Well, what did Jesus require? As we've gone through Matthew's Gospel, we come to this section in the middle of Matthew's Gospel and I've slowed down intentionally over these few weeks because we've come to the turning point of the whole Gospel. From chapters 1 through to 16, it's really asking the question, who is Jesus? From chapter 16 through to 28, it's asking the question, why has he come? But in asking who he is and in asking why he has come, there is this other question keeps coming up. What does he require of us? And it particularly comes up at this point. It's seen in today's passage in the extraordinary claims of Jesus that Jesus makes on the disciples' lives. Look there at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I mean, he's just told them that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to be killed. And now he's inviting them to join him. Come and follow me all the way to the cross. That's an extraordinary thing to invite anybody to do. I'm going up to Canberra to be killed. Why don't you come with me? It just is a bizarre invitation. It's an extraordinary invitation. But let's look briefly at this passage before we think through its implications. Verse 24 spells out the requirements for the disciples. For any disciple, if anyone wants to come, here it is. Three things, and they all really boil down to the same thing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Uh, to deny yourself is to say no. If I deny an accusation, I say, no, I didn't do that. If I deny myself an ice cream, it will be the first time ever. Uh, it's a matter of saying no to an ice cream. That doesn't happen. But if you deny yourself, you're saying no. So what does he ask you to deny? Yourself. That's what he asks you to deny. Not deny yourself an ice cream or a second helping or an accusation, but to deny your self, to say no to self. And then to take up his cross. The Roman form of execution was, of course, a political statement, not just a way of executing people. And when you move from the court to the place of execution, you carried the cross piece with you. Uh, not the whole cross, the vertical pole was already out there, but the crossbar you carried, and it was like the medieval stocks, where people were, were put in stocks and the crowd around could have fun with them, play sport with them, because there they are, locked in a position, unable to defend themselves in any way. And so the crowd would throw fruit at them, jostle them, make... It was said for many a man that he was relieved when he finally got to the place of execution, for he was so badly treated by the crowd. There is the image of Jesus, you see. If you want to f be my disciple, well, you've got to say no to yourself. Pick up your cross and come with me to the place of execution. Come with me through the persecution, through the hostility, through the crowd hatred. Come with me all the way to execution. And so the third one is follow me. Come and do it with me. Now, they all boil down to one and the same thing. That is, to lose your life for Jesus. For that's how he goes on to explain it 
when he gives the reasons for doing it. Well, there are three reasons for doing what he requires. Verse 25, if you save your life now, if you hang on to it now, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life now for Jesus' sake, you'll save it. To deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus is to lose your life, is to give your life away. It is to accept the death penalty. It is to lose your life. But if you hang on to your life and say, no, I'm not going to give up my life for you, you will lose it. Whereas if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel's, you will save it. And so the second reason comes in verse 26. What does it profit? What gain is there in gaining the whole world if you forfeit your life? Uh, what price do you put upon your own head? What, what gain, what profit would you give for your own soul? The third reason is in verse 27. For as the Son of Man... I will come in judgment at the end of time and when I come in judgment I will repay everybody according to their deeds according to what he has done and so if you do not do that which is right then you've got to expect the judgment to come upon you and if these three reasons are not enough Jesus also gives a promise in verse 28 that some will not taste death before they see the, king, the coming of the kingdom more specifically, seeing the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. Now, given what he's asking of them and the reasons he uses for them doing it, it brings us to the question of who does he think he is? See, if I were to ask you today to leave everything and come follow me, like he asked the fishermen to leave the nets, leave their fathers, leave their boats, come follow him. Or if I were to say, I want you to let your children quit studying, leave what they're doing, come follow me, I'll take them off to a cause in which they're most likely going to get killed. I doubt whether you'd do it. At least, I hope you wouldn't. I hope you'd recognise a madman when he spoke to you. And if I would ask you to follow me all the way to martyrdom, to say no to self, accept crucifixion and follow me on the way to death, would you do it? Who did this man think he was? That he could ask people to lay down their life for him. That he could promise to give life to people. That he was going to come into the world to judge the world at the end of the world, that he was coming bringing in his kingdom. Who did he think he is? One clue to that is in the phrase back in verse 16 when Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus accepted that acclamation. That is, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. When I say long-awaited, it was a thousand years they'd been waiting. King David's always easy to remember, he lived a thousand B.C., just one of those easier, it's a lot easier than 1492 and Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 1,000, David. That's very simple. David was the one who was promised by God that the Messiah was coming, the Christ was coming, and it would be God's son and David's son who would be the Christ. So for a 1,000 years, the people of Israel were waiting for this king to come. 
kings came, kings went, none of them fulfilled what was required. But still they waited. And now Peter is saying, you're the one. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you for seeing it. He was the man who was coming to rescue God's people from their suffering and establish the kingdom of God on earth, the reign of God, not only over Israel, but over all the nations of the world. And the disciples identified him as the Christ. And he accepted this identification. And so, in verse 20, he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. There's another clue as to who Jesus was. That is the phrase he kept using of himself, the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man means three different things in the Bible. Firstly, it means a man. He's the Son of Man. In the book of Ezekiel, God keeps on saying to Ezekiel, stand up, Son of Man. And it's emphasizing his humanity as as opposed to God and his divinity. The second way the word can be used is an Aramaic way, which is oneself. One can talk of oneself if one wants to. One is a little strange if one does, but one generally has corgis and one can look after one's corgis if one wants to. It's the kind of third person in in direct speech by which great ones talk of themselves without talking about themselves. So on these first two usages, you see, when Jesus used the phrase son of man, a little odd, but we know who he's talking about, himself. But there is a third usage of Son of Man seen explicitly in Psalm 7, but also there in uh, Psalm 8, but also there more particularly in Daniel 7. For when the judgment of the world happens at the end of time, the books are opened and all the peoples of the world appear before God. But before any judgment happens, one like the Son of Man comes in the clouds to the Ancient of Days and is given all power to rule over all nations for all time. We don't know who this Son of Man is. We just know that at the judgment, there is a man who is going to be given the authority to rule the universe forever. Jesus always used this phrase when talking of himself. And so when Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, Jesus immediately tells them about the Son of Man, suffering many things. Well, if he's suffering many things, that just talks about himself. But then he goes on in verses 27 and 28, talking about himself coming in judgment with the angels when the time will come that each person is given according to their deeds, which shows that Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man not just to talk about his humanity, but to talk about him being the ruler of the world in the judgment day. It was because he was the Christ, because he is the Son of Man come in glory, that Jesus would make the claims that he did on the lives of other people. His claims are completely consistent with being the ruler of the universe, the ruler of the world for all time, who at the end of the world is to be the judge of all men. One of the questions we need to ask our Islamic friends is what is their relationship to Jesus? For even within Islam, there is the belief that Jesus is the judge of all the world. Muhammad's not the judge of all the world. Jesus is, according to Islam. And so while it's very good to be on good terms with Muhammad for 
Muslims, very important they're on good terms with Jesus because he's the one who is the judge. It's a useful way of just pushing Muslims away from focusing on Muhammad, who is only a man, to Jesus, who is the son of man, coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. But the extraordinary thing about Jesus was not that he thought he was the Christ and making the claims of the Christ, but the answer to our next question that we looked at last week, what did he think he came to do? For he didn't come to raise an army, win a militaristic campaign, politically outmaneuver his opponents, to bring about a coup in the Roman Empire. What he came to do was to lay down his life for his people. He was going to Jerusalem to be rejected by the nation's leaders, to be handed over to the Gentiles, the other nations, the Romans, to be beaten, to be killed, and on the third day rise again. Now that when the disciples heard this, they didn't understand. They couldn't understand. Why would the Christ, the world ruler of the universe, do such a thing or allow such a thing to be done to him? They didn't yet understand that he was paying the penalty for their sins and the sins of the whole world. They didn't understand until much, much later. But he knew, he knew it and would explain it to them over and over again that he was the ransom price to be paid that sinners may go free in the judgment of God. And so his mission was not about Romans and Greeks. It wasn't about Egyptians and Babylonians. It wasn't about world empires or conquering kings. His mission was about sin and forgiveness, about life and death, about punishment for sin, the wages of sin and the gift of eternal life. He came and died that we may live. He suffered in this world that we may live in the next. My friends, if Jesus came to conquer the Egyptians, if Jesus came to conquer the Babylonians, even if he came to conquer the Romans, we wouldn't be talking about him today. Conquerors come, conquerors go. They become a, useless, a useful piece of history for school children to learn. Uh, they become something that you can win in a trivial pursuit game in a pub sometime. But they are of no ongoing significance for our lives, really. But Jesus didn't come as a king like the world's kings. Jesus came to defeat our real enemy, the enemy that has such effect upon us in our lies, in our deceit, in our greed, in our covetousness, in our unsociableness, in our self-centeredness. He comes to deal with us. And so his whole mission was about life and death, about heaven and hell. So come back to the question of what lies behind today's passage. What does he require of us? Deny, take up, follow. If we're to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves. Say no to self-rule. No to self-government, no to self-determination, no to self-centeredness. Prince Leonard of the Hutt River Valley declared himself independent of Australia back in the 19... I can't remember, 70s? 
his farm in Western Australia became its own province with himself as the prince and he gave out stamps and set up embassies and he declared a unilateral declaration of independence against Australia. It's one of the lovely features of Australian open democracy that we have left him to continue running his principate even to this day. Eccentrics are what make a country a livable place to be in. It's why the British culture is such a pleasant culture. Eccentrics are allowed. And Prince Leonard is a classic. But Prince Leonard is also a classic illustration of what sin is about. It's the unilateral, unilateral declaration of independence against God. That's what sin is. Saying, you might think you're God, but I'm God of me. You may be God of all those other people and all the rest of the world, but I am the God of me. I live under my own government. I rule my own life. And Jesus says, if you wish to be saved, if you wish to be my disciple, the first thing you've got to do is run the flag down of your own government. Say no to self. And we must take up the cross. We must expect the opposition suffering rejection, accepting persecution and facing the martyrdoms of this world. That's what we've got to expect. It's a tad easy to say it in Australia, isn't it? But that's what the Christians of Pakistan are expecting. That's what the Christians of Egypt are expecting. That's what the Christians behind a certain uh, Iron Curtain are expecting. That's what Christians in China can never be sure that it's not going to turn up in the next little while. Be you under a communist rule or under a, a, a Muslim rule or even Christians within India under Hindu rule, the danger of professing the name of Jesus is a still, live, real danger. In Kenya, Muslims are invited to leave the compound before the shooting and killing took place. Over the weekend, as people came out of a church in Pakistan, a bomb blew up, 50, 60 of them killed. We mustn't be surprised. We follow the crucified one. That was his invitation. Say no to self, take up your cross, follow him in his selfless commitment to his father, in his loving service of God and his people in the passion he has for saving others, in the willingness to lay down his life, if need be, that others may be saved. There's a famous 19th century hymn that churches around the world have been singing for more than 100 years, but it's one that I must confess I pause as I come to sing verses of it, for it's about the commitment to God, you know, take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my hands, take my feet, Take my voice, take my lips, take my wealth, take my mind, my motives, my will, my heart, my love. Take myself and I will be yours for all eternity. It's one of those songs that's so easy to sing, preferably if you don't think about it. For when you think about it, it's what Jesus is requiring. 
The claim of Jesus on our lives is still extraordinary because it is still all-encompassing. But it also means that Jesus is either the world's greatest blasphemer or God. For what he requires of people should only be given to God. And so he is really the blasphemer of all times. Or he is God. So why should I do it? Why should I do what he requires? Why should I give him my life? Well, first and foremost, because he's the Christ. Because he is the one who he claims to be, the ruler of the world. See, who do you think Jesus is is still the great question. It's all very well to say he's the Lord, but if he is the Lord, is he your Lord? If he is your Lord, then you would give your life to him, for he's your Lord. If he's not the Lord, then you mustn't have him as your Lord. So who do you think Jesus is? It's the question Jesus posed to them. Who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? The second reason is because he is the saviour. He came into the world to save sinners. By dying on our behalf and as our substitute, in our place on the cross, he's laid down his life to purchase our forgiveness. But look at the three reasons he gives here in this passage. Verse 25, if you hang on to your life now, if you refuse to give it to him, then in due time you'll lose it. For you wouldn't accept him. If, on the other hand, you lose your life now for him, then in due time you will find it, in fact, straight away, the new life that he died and rose to give you. So, verse 26, what is so important in life that you will not give it up for Jesus? What is so important in life that you'll risk hell for it? Here is the dilemma of foolishness, the devil's monkey trap. I don't know whether monkey traps actually exist or not, but I know the theory of the monkey trap, whether it exists or not. But the monkey trap is where the monkey can't let go of the food and remove his hand from the bottle and so stays trapped by his own greed. That is the theory of the monkey trap. Not living in a country with monkeys, I've never tried it out. But I think if I was a little boy in Africa, I would have tried it by now. You get the bottle that is small enough for them to be able to put their hand in when empty, but not so small that they can, that's so big that they can ever pull it out when full. Now we laugh at the monkey's foolishness. For what is the value of the things we hold on to rather than give up for life itself? The house? The car? the overseas job, the promotion, the golf, the bowls, the sailing. What's so important that you would not risk eternity for it? Rather that you would risk eternity for it. For people continue to refuse the Lord Jesus Christ by holding on to things that are not worthwhile, that don't matter, that are not worth living and dying for. The young woman I spoke to who wouldn't let go of the drunk and abusive boyfriend 
it was so irrational. Leave aside the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would you hang on to a drunken, abusive boyfriend? What is there in your head that would want you to hang on to such a man? She knew of the Lord Jesus Christ, but she chose the drunk rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. The young man I knew who wouldn't give his life for Christ because he was afraid of his work colleagues who would laugh at him for every Thursday night they all went down the pub and got drunk together and if he didn't go down and get drunk with them he would be an outcast. He was a huge man, he was about six foot eight. Big. You can't work out why he was so afraid of the other fellows. It was a very sad night in which I spoke to that man as he broke down in tears with me for he knew the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ but he couldn't face his mates with the truth. The young sportsman who wouldn't give up his dream of representing his country and so rejected the Lord Jesus Christ because he wanted to represent his country. And he failed to do so. He could only just get to the second string, not to the first string. The businessman I know, who on his deathbed was still on the telephone trading with the markets. His family gathered around him and he's asking them to leave so that he can concentrate. He is facing eternity within an hour and he's trading on the markets with his stockbroker. Story after story can break your heart of the foolishness of the humans caught with that monkey trap hanging on to something in life so dearly that they face a Christless eternity. But what of you? Is there anything so important in your life that you wouldn't give it away for Jesus? That you will not let go of it to gain Christ? Which brings us to verse 27. For not only does Christ bring forgiveness and life, eternity in the kingdom of God, but he also brings judgment on the last day when he comes as the Son of Man to judge the living and the dead. There are so many better reasons for becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ than fear of hell. I mean, there's the truth that he is the Christ. There is the truth that he loves you so much as to die for you. There's the, the fact that you can find life in him. There is living for something worth having. But if there's no positive reason for which you would ever accept the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would ever deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, then let me remind you of the negative reason, hell itself. For you are rejecting the one to whom one day you will stand before in judgment. On the last day when the secrets of every heart are revealed and each is given exactly what they deserve, you will be given by him what you deserve. There are so many better reasons to give up your life than that. But if that is the only reason you will listen to, then hear that one. Another reason, though, for doing what Jesus required of us is what is promised in verse 28. That the kingdom is not very far away 
It's not in the never, never time of the future. The kingdom of God is right at hand indeed. Some of those present when Jesus spoke would see him in glory. And that's what we'll see in chapter 17 in next week's Bible study. But at least let me warn you that it is coming. So, how do you deny yourself? What do you need to do to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, it's on the back of the outline here. It's the prayer with which I'm going to finish today. It's, it's in the middle there. There's, it's in a box down the bottom there. It's the little prayer that says no to self, for it acknowledges I'm not worthy to be accepted. I don't deserve, I am guilty. I need forgiveness. It thanks God for sending his son to die for me and rising again to give me new life. And then it prays, forgive me, but look at the next bit, and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler, King, Lord. So that is what is required. That change, that I no longer live for self, but for him who died for me and rose again. Let's pray. And I invite you to pray this along with me in the quietness of your own mind to our Heavenly Father. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gifts of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.